think maybe one of the principles that we can tack on here is that when we think about diet and approaching food, are we coming at it from a place of loving ourselves and wanting to nourish ourselves with healthful food? Or are we coming from a place of self-loathing and we want to punish ourselves? I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. I've got this bad habit when I run up against something novel, something I don't understand and don't know how to begin making sense of, and especially if for some reason it raises a feeling of discomfort or irritation, I'll dismiss it with an eye roll and call it stupid. That's stupid. Usually equals, I don't understand that, and I'm not sure that I want to. I do it more frequently than I like to admit, and have noticed often enough, whatever I'm aiming the that's stupid at, it's like an X on a treasure map. It means dig in. There's something here. That stupid feels like tripping over something that needs my attention. It means a habituated pattern or belief is about to get challenged. Demolition might be called for, and for sure, it means classes in session and homework is involved. I like to think of myself as open-minded, innovative on a good day, and with a healthy appetite for novelty. But when that stupid floats through my mind, I know that some kind of resistance is bubbling up from the watery depths. There are plenty of thoughts that carry the subtext of, ooh, that's cool, interesting, or have a feeling of attraction toward the object of thought. It's helpful, sure enough, but that stupid? It shows me more clearly the texture of my biases, beliefs, and hopes for how the world could be, which, often enough, are wrong. That little phrase, it lets me off a hook that I probably should be on. Oddly enough, when I have a strong negative visceral reaction, it rarely ends up meaning no. More often it means pay attention and go a little bit slow. And it might be that no is indeed the right answer. But a reactive no is not as helpful as a considered no. And then there are the times, and there's plenty of them, that my habituated success of dealing with a particular situation, it needs a thump upside the head because the world is ever-changing. But it's hard to notice those changes when you're not paying attention. That's stupid. It really means pause and pay attention. It's a strange way I have of getting my attention, but it seems mostly reliable. I've got a lot of respect for people who help others with nutrition and eating habits. This, for me, is one of the tougher aspects of practice, in large part because of the emotions and beliefs that people carry about themselves, how they eat, what they think they should eat or not. Mostly, I listen to how hard people are on themselves about their, air quotes here, diet. Either they're on it with an OCD level of compulsion or off the mark with terrible feelings of guilt and failure. It's as if there is a standard of perfection 
And if you're off, even a little, well, then you're a complete failure. The kind of dietary purity that many aspire to is more often than not a source of suffering and self-recrimination. This is why I wanted to invite Brenda Lee to a conversation. She's both a nutritionist and an acupuncturist, and I wanted to know if diet, like so many other aspects of life, was subject to the Pareto Principle, also known as the 80-20 rule. The 80-20 rule basically describes the asymmetrical relationship of input and output. For example, 20% of your patients bring you 80% of your income. The top 20% of a sales force, they bring in 80% of the sales. In school, 20% of the students, yep, you got it. They ask 80% of the questions. This got me wondering if it's possible in the world of nutrition to help our patients by having them attend to the 20% of good eating habits that would bring them 80% of the effect that they're seeking. Likewise, what's the 20% of things that people should not do to get that 80% good return on health? We'll get into this with Brenda in a moment. Stay with us. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit Meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. 
Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you're helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. Brenda Lee, welcome back to Geological. Thanks for having me, Michael. I'm excited to do this. I am too. I think it's a fantastic topic today. And uh, you being, I was going to say an expert, but God, I hate that word. You being experienced with nutrition, I think is a good person to have on for this because I think everyone listening to this podcast right now probably thinks food is important, probably talks to their patients about it probably feels uh, frustrated, overwhelmed, all kinds of other emotions around dealing with nutrition in our clinical work. Yeah. Well, food and nutrition are, you know, it is the cornerstone of our health, but it can be such a confusing area because there's so much information floating around nowadays and it's hard to know, you know, who to believe anymore and, and what to eat. So the thing about food, again, you know, over the years, there's diet fads, there's this, there's that. This is good for you. This is not good for you. The food pyramid gets inverted. Things that were supposedly healthy, now they're not. Like back in the 50s, they considered cigarettes healthy. We know about that these days. There was a time when eating fat, that's going to kill you. And now if you don't eat enough of the right fat, it's going to kill you. There's all kinds of stuff, not to mention the emotional factors that go into food and good luck unwinding those because it's like, like so part and parcel with our nutrition, isn't it? Oh, yeah. You're touching on a lot of juicy topics here, Michael. But the emotion part, it's so intertwined with food because food can be a big source of comfort for people as well and a big source of pleasure. And it's also something that brings people together in social situations. So it gets really complicated when people, you know, they try to change what they eat or they try to go on a certain diet and all of a sudden that might affect whether or not they can spend time with their friends. It might affect their social relationships. And also when people, if they're dealing with some kind of emotional difficulties, they might turn to food as a way to comfort themselves. And that can also add on challenge. Well, heck yeah, food never says no. The ice cream, the container of ice cream never says no. The container of ice cream says, mmm. 
I love it back too. I can relate. (laughs) (laughs) I am struck with you, the word that you just used, intertwined, that our food and our emotions are intertwined. It's not enough to say they're connected, intertwined. And like, good luck untangling that, you know? Yeah, I actually don't know if you can untangle that. I think that's just part of the package. I don't think so. I think it is part of the package. And so that's why I invited you to this conversation today, because I've got an idea and I want to see if it holds water. Okay. We haven't really talked about this other than to say, I've got an idea. Let's talk. And you said, sure, let's talk. So here it is. I have discovered through a number of different say, explorations in life, not to mention living through life, that there's this thing called the 80-20 principle, also known as the Pareto principle. Are you familiar with it, the 80-20 principle? Yes, I'm somewhat familiar with it. Okay. So what's your sense of the 80-20 principle? Okay. So it's when you find the 20% of kind of energy or effort that you put into something to get 80% results. Right. So... The thing about this is that's so interesting. It shows up in all kinds of places. So for example, if anyone looks at their clinical practice, they will probably notice that 80% of their income comes from 20% of their patients, right? And when you think about the arguments you have with your spouse, 80% of your arguments come from like 20% of the disagreements that you have. You could have all kinds of disagreements, But there's like 20% that are going to generate the lion's share of the conflict and the arguments. And this principle seems to show up everywhere. I love the 80-20 principle because, well, I like to think of myself as lazy. Some people say I'm efficient. Maybe they're not that different. I figure if I can put in the right 20% of effort and get 80% of the bang for that buck, on most days that's good enough especially, especially when you consider that to get that last 20%, you have to put in 80% of the effort. Like, why would you do that? You know? So given that the 80-20 principle seems to be kind of built into how the world works, and also given that when it comes to nutrition and diet, we've got these crazy ideas that if you're not 100% on it, then you're a total failure. I've had people that are very strict with their diets, but you know they, they miss it by 5% or something. And they just, it's like, oh, I'm such a failure, right? What if we could turn down the noise on nutrition or help our patients turn down the noise by helping them understand what is the most important 20% to pay attention to to get 80% of what they want? Because my suspicion is most folks would be like, I do this to get this much, and I don't have to be perfect? Oh, my God. Brenda Lee, what a relief that would be to our patients, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we definitely don't have to be perfect when it comes to nutrition. And that in itself can be a burden when we're, you know, assigning morality to our diets and telling ourselves whether we're a good person based on how we eat. Right. So can I be like, 
like, what's the right 20% of morality that'll get me to 80% of being a virtuous person? <laughs> That's a great question. And I think we should really discuss this because I think it's really important considering how much noise there is out there that really, can we distill it down to 20%? And I think the answer is yes. Okay. Okay. All right. Are you ready? I'm handing you a megaphone. Have at it. Okay. So I think the 20% comes down to two things. The first thing. Only two things? Only two things. 10% each. So the first thing is it, it really comes down to just focusing on principles. The first thing is focus on principles. The second thing is listen to your body. Okay. I'm taking notes here. Okay, so focus on principles. What are the principles to focus on? So in Chinese medicine, we love principles. I think we kind of glamorize Li a little bit sometimes, right? But I think being a Chinese medicine practitioner has really made me a better dietitian. And I think it's because in Chinese medicine, we focus a lot on principles. And that helps us to sort through a lot of the noise and the confusion that comes in the clinic, right? Because sometimes we have patients and they have like 50 different symptoms and it gets really confusing really quickly. So that's why we need to have a, some kind of framework to be able to, to kind of focus on, you know, the basic, go back to basics. So the principles that I think are most important in nutrition, there's a few of them. I would say the first one is to eat as close to nature as possible. And this one, honestly, it's kind of just common sense, right? If you eat a single ingredient whole food, you know, such as broccoli or a hunk of meat or an apple, it's probably going to be healthier than some kind of snack bar with 37 ingredients in it. So there's that piece. Fewer ingredients is better. Yes, I would agree. Um, I mean, one could argue that Maybe if you read the ingredient label and there was a ton of ingredients and all the ingredients were natural. But at the end of the day, when something is commercially prepared, the priority there is profit. The only time where your health is in priority is when you're in charge of your own food. There's that. We live in a busy world. I can see outsourcing our... Uh, nutrition to some degree. I mean, a lot of us do. It's convenient. And you were just talking about looking at the labels. Maybe there's a label and there's a bunch of good stuff in it. I'm thinking the air quotes here, the superfoods, very, very popular these days. And there's a bunch of stuff and you look at the ingredients and it's all, you know, it gets checkmarked in the good category. Brenda Lee, how good is that stuff? Okay. There's, there's a few things to unpack here. So so the first thing is there can be loopholes as well to um, what needs to be on a label or not. So sometimes if it's just a really small amount, it doesn't even need to be labeled. Or sometimes like things might be labeled as like natural flavor. And that can be really vague. <laughs> right. What the hell is that? I've seen that. Natural flavor. Hmm. Pretty much be anything, really. So it's concerning. And generally, I would... Just say that it's it's just safer to stick to a food that you see it and you know what it is, um, as opposed to something with uh, lots of things on the label. And something else with regards to the superfoods, 
Uh, this is a whole nother can of worms. I don't know if we want to go into that right now. Let's just uh, let's dip our toe into it, just so we know what's in the mix here. Okay, sounds good. And the reason I say that is because then we can decide where in that 2080 it belongs. I'm someone who doesn't believe in superfoods because people kind of say like, okay, based on like how many nutrients or antioxidants are in a food, then this one is like super, super good for you. But I don't think that's true because it really depends on who is the person we're talking about and what are their circumstances. Because sometimes a potato could be a superfood. Potatoes are really starchy. And sometimes if people are having something like loose stools and diarrhea, that kind of has the properties of like white rice and some of those chalky herbs that we use for diarrhea. And a peeled white potato can be phenomenal for stopping diarrhea. So that could be a superfood. So I don't believe in that whole concept. And another issue with superfoods is that they tend to be taken from different cultures and then kind of fetishized a little bit. So they're just stripped from their cultural context, like goji berries, for example, and talked about like, oh, look at all these antioxidants. And without any acknowledgement of how goji berries are actually used in Chinese medicine. Right. So what you're bringing up here, we have to pay attention to a person's constitution. That's one, that's one leg. The other leg is their current situation, what's up with them. It's great to hear, you know, potatoes get such a bad rap these days. Ooh, they're a nightshade. And ooh, it, it'll make you fat, blah, 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 starchy. Same thing with bread, same thing with crackers. I recently had a little gastro, gastrointestinal episode, and I want to tell you something. Some bread, some white bread was like, oh, it felt so good. I could digest it. It settled my stomach. It was, it was just phenomenally yummy. It was unbelievably delicious in that moment. So white bread was a superfood for you in that moment. And it had a little butter on it too. It was so good. Oh, but it, it's true. You know, we need, and we learn this in Chinese medicine. We learn to look at context, but it's so difficult at times. We're part of the larger culture and there's these ideas about what's healthy, what's not. And, and to come back to our basics and remember them. You know, here's the other thing, too. We're very keen on looking at how herbs are combined. You were just mentioning certain superfoods. They have a, uh, you know, different herb uh, substances, berries, whatever, from different cultures. So, number one, stripped of the cultural context. But now you're also combining things that have never, ever been combined together in the history of the world. How do we know that's good for someone? Yeah, I don't know. You, I, guess, I guess you'd have to just observe over a long period of time to see if they're safe. Or maybe a short period of time. How many times have you had people come in and tell you about the healthy smoothie they have and then they get diarrhea afterwards? See, I'm being cleansed. Yeah, who knows? Was it Or was it the handful of ice they threw into the smoothie that gave them the diarrhea? Exactly. So, okay. So superfoods. <laughs> Again, I like your rubric here, thinking of 80-20, eat simply. Eating simply would fall on that 20%. Yes, you nailed it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. I like to keep things as simple as possible because I get a lot of people asking me a lot of really specific questions, and I think it's not a really good use of energy to be focusing on things like 
Should I be supplementing with this vitamin? Is saturated fat good or bad? How many grams of protein should I be eating? And I mean, it depends on the person, but generally it's not a good use of time to focus on that. It's far more useful to just stick to the principles, eat close to nature, eat simply, prepare as much as your own food as possible. Okay. So principle number two, prepare as much as you can. Exactly. Make it DIY, do it yourself. Yes. And this could sound like it's more than 20%, especially for someone who is not preparing much of their own food. That might sound like a really daunting task. But honestly, it's it's not as scary as it seems. So I think the key thing here, I don't know if this deserves its own principal status, but um, is to plan ahead because that is going to go a long way to help you eating your home prepared foods. All it takes is just taking half an hour on the weekend. Just sit down, put on some nice music and start jotting down like what what meals you want to eat for the week. Maybe go on Pinterest for some inspiration and then um, make, make a little grocery list. And then once you have a plan in place, it's so much easier because that's often the hardest thing to do is knowing what to cook and what to eat. So it just takes a little bit of time each week. Well, again, we're not saying that there's no effort. We're saying there's 20% of particular effort. So it sounds like planning for sure falls within that 20%. Oh, yes. That's huge. Okay. Let's see. So far we have, yeah, eating close to nature, eating simply, cooking your own food, planning ahead. You know, I want to keep it simple. So I don't want to have too many principles. I think that really covers it. Um, maybe the, the the one thing I would add is to eat mindfully and chew your food well. Chew your damn food. I, I once heard somebody say to me, I can't remember who it is. This was many years ago, but they said, you know, your stomach doesn't have teeth. Unfortunately, it does not. <laughs> or fortunately, those teeth will get worn down quick in that acidic environment. That's for sure. Okay. Wow. This is really interesting, Brenda, because I know for myself and I know for my patients for sure, and you were just mentioning this, they want to know like how much protein or how much this, how much that, carbohydrate, what kind of carbohydrate. And it seems to me like what you've done is sidestep that question and really invited people into looking at simplicity and thoughtfulness. Yeah. Exactly. Simplicity and thoughtfulness. You know, it'd be so much easier if you could just tell me the 20% of what I should eat and what I shouldn't. <laughs> well, that's what people want. They just want oftentimes like, just give me a list of rules, you know, know this, yes, this. Okay. So it's not simple. Well, that's the thing. It's perhaps it's simple, but not easy. <laughs> simple, but not easy. You sound like a Zen practitioner. <laughs> I listen to too much geological. <laughs> that phrase has been known to come out of my mouth from time to time. <laughs> All right. The other thing that you had mentioned, and, and I think this is where a lot of us run into some rough water, is listening to our body. I'm thinking of a, a, a patient I have. And I just love her to pieces. I love most of my patients to pieces. Have you noticed that you, you kind of love the people that, that that come to see you on a regular basis? They're so 
you know, they're just open and inquiring and, you know, on some kind of a journey. It's, it's hard not to kind of fall in love with them, be happy to accompany them. They kind of become like a family member that you're excited to catch up with after a while. Totally. So I've got this one woman and she loves Diet Coke. She loves it. And she says, and she also knows that it really mucks up her digestion. But she says this, she says, it's the only thing that gives me comfort. Oh my God. Right? Talk about entanglements. So how do you listen? Help me out with helping her out by how do you listen to your body when it seems like your body might be lying to you? Oh, man. Nice softball question. Yeah, we were jumping into the deep end with this one. Michael, you're such a skilled um, interviewer and listener that I suspect you you might have had conversations with her about, you know, maybe where that need for comfort may be coming from. But I think it would be worthwhile to explore that with the person to see, you know, what might be going on for them that they need to feel like they need to rely on a food for comfort. Because I remember a patient and he he was having trouble incorporating more vegetables into his diet. And um, I remember I spent a few sessions just giving him all these wonderful ideas about different fun and easy ways he could incorporate vegetables <laughs> into his diet. That That didn't work so well, did it? <laughs> and then I think one day I was, and he, you know, he wasn't making any changes. And one day I was like, okay, what's going on? Like, let's, let's just sit down and talk about it. And, and that's when I realized that he, he actually hated his job and he was, it was really, really stressful. And he was in the process of trying to get to his, like find another job and he was already applying and so that made me realize that, oh, okay, so because of all that stress and all that emotional challenges he was having in his work, the last thing he wanted to do was eat a vegetable. He didn't have the time to do that or the energy to do that. And also he just wanted comfort food. So Yeah, like one more damn thing I have to do goes up in the work troublesome column. I really want that donut. Yeah. The cake donut, not the kind with the clay, just the cake, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so sometimes people are overwhelmed. And, uh, you know, and then it doesn't make it any easier that in the back of your mind, you're going, well, this is good for me and I should be doing it, but I'm not, which makes me an even worse person than I thought I was. And da, 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 da. Yeah, exactly. And then sometimes that can cause this vicious cycle where people then feel ashamed about what they eat and then that yes exactly i th thank you for naming that i hadn't thought about the shame aspect of it until you just mentioned it that is but now that i think about it it's so incredibly there for so many people they're actually talking about shame it's huge okay so maybe part of our 20 percent is helping people resolve, get through, untangle. I mean, what do you, like, how do you work with shame? I think maybe, yeah, maybe one one of the principles that we can tack on here is that 
when we think about diet and approaching food, are we coming at it from a place of loving ourselves and wanting to nourish ourselves with healthful food? Or are we coming from a place of self-loathing and we want to punish ourselves? Because I think a lot of people, especially in the weight loss kind of world, a lot of people are, they really don't like the way that they look and they feel like they have to go on something really punishing uh, in order to fit in with societal ideals. But I really encourage people to eat in a way where I'm taking care of myself. I love my body. I appreciate my body for what it does. And I want to nourish it with the best foods possible. Oh, boy. You don't have to go very far and looking in any direction where there's some kind of advertisement targeted at you that's reminding you how your physical being is deficient. Oh, yeah. And I think a lot of those ideals actually are are not healthy to strive for. Yeah, that's the thing is that there's a lot of unhealthy ways that people can use to lose weight. And they even if they end up looking like that person on the billboard, you know, maybe their health is actually in a worse state than they were before. Right. Because they could look like that person on the billboard. But my suspicion of what people are looking for, I mean, maybe to some degree it's those cut abs, but to some degree it's how they imagine they would feel if they look like that. What they're really looking for is the fe- is a certain kind of a feeling, but it's that body image that represents what that feeling is. Well, but, but I suspect what they're really aiming at is the feeling. That's such a good point, Michael. And isn't that ultimately like what human beings are after is is to be happy and and content yeah and content and i think we've maybe been tricked into thinking that looking a certain way or having certain things or getting to a certain place in life is going to make us happy and content so perhaps maybe a big part of this would also be finding contentment is perhaps a big part of making peace with food Hello everyone, Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. Contentment. Well, this, I mean, this comes 
we've just walked this dog around the block with this patient of mine talking about the food that makes her ill, but it gives her such comfort. What she's really looking for is that contentment. I think that's what she's saying. She's saying, I want to feel content. This thing, for whatever reason, gives me a moment of contentness. I don't know why it gives her a moment of contentness. That might be worth investigating. How does it make you content? Maybe she's being a bad girl and she kind of likes being a bad girl. You know, or maybe as a kid it was a treat and, you know, there was, it, it had a moment of delight because it was a treat. I, I don't know what that means for her, but you've set me off on the path of inquiring. How is it that it makes you feel that way? And when as a kid did you get to enjoy this food and feel that way? A lot of these issues actually begin in our younger years. Sometimes it's from watching a parent of ours go on lots of diets uh, and feeling like that's just the way that life is. And sometimes food is used as a reward um, of some kind or even a bribe of some kind to get you to do certain things. And that can really influence our relationship with food. Wow, you'd really end up with kind of a love-hate then because it's like you want it, but it's being used as a reward, so you know you're being manipulated. So I love it, I hate it. I love you, I hate you. Mm. So uh, could we put in our 20%, I'm not suggesting that we become psychotherapists, but more like we become uh, <sighs> curious about people's origin story around how it is that a food is a certain way for them. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that would fall under the listen to your body piece. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely. I think it's very worthwhile for people to explore how food is for them and observe how different foods make them feel and their emotions when they reach for certain foods. Yeah. I'm thinking to my role as the practitioner as we've uncovered this in the conversation, there's probably going to be some shame that shows up somewhere along the path here. And, and to be attentive to that. I mean, much in the same way that a lot of practitioners are very tuned into trauma, like just being aware of different traumas that people have had. I'm not saying people have had trauma with food, maybe they have, but just recognizing that shame is probably going to be intertwined there somehow and to like figure out a way of leaving some space for that, working with that. Have you got, I mean, you've had a lot of experience working with people around this. When you are working with someone and, and you notice that they've got some kind of shame coming up around food, how do you navigate that? Yeah, I usually see if the patient is already doing some kind of mindfulness practice or something that allows them to be more present because whether they are, you know, they like to go hiking in nature or whether they do yoga or they like to meditate, I encourage them to take up some of those activities because when we are present, then we can tune into ourself better. And that's when we can listen more to our own emotions and see, you know, and just and just check in with ourselves. And this is something that I experience in my personal life as well. I've noticed that sometimes when I'm feeling really stressed or I'm I have some kind of 
challenging emotion come up. You know, I'm only human. And definitely in those situations, like I, I noticed that I want to like eat some highly palatable foods because it gives me kind of that dopamine hit that helps to make me feel more comforted. And sometimes it'll be the other way around where, you know, I'll have a couple of days where I feel like, huh, I just, I just feel so ravenous for, you know, certain foods. You know, I just, I want to eat the whole bag of chips or something. And that's an opportunity for me to check in with myself and be like, Oh, what's what's going on these couple of days, Brenda Lee? And sometimes, yeah, that that can be really helpful. Yeah. It sounds to me that maybe part of the 20% is some kind of capacity for compassion for oneself. We didn't say that the 20% was going to be easy. <laughs> we just said the most important and effective. Are we pushing 30% now? <laughs> no, I don't I don't think so. No, I, I think that compassion piece pays dividends in lots of other places. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so we've got the principles of well, focusing on principles. We got that that one pillar. I say I should say pillars. We have the pillar of focusing on principles, the pillar of listening to your body. What else goes into this intertwined mix besides a nice big fat ribeye steak. Yeah, what else goes into the 20%? I do Chinese medicine, so I I look at people's body constitutions. So to me that's that's something that I think is really important for people's health, but I don't know if it fits into this. This is more I think this is more general that the 20% that we're talking about, kind of more general stuff. Well, constitution is pretty important. I mean, we walk around in it. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So I would say that is pretty important because we can get really sick if we eat foods that are not right for our constitution. Um, so I think it is really valuable to to know our constitution and to feel empowered to know, okay, so these foods are going to support my constitution and these foods are not. Mm-hmm. I mean, my suspicion is if a food doesn't support your constitution, it doesn't mean you never get to eat it. It might mean eat it sometimes. You know, it depends who you ask. If you ask my teacher, Tracy Stewart, she'd be like, it would be, you would have to strictly avoid certain foods. And so, yeah, for some people, especially uh, so I do the Sasong Constitution. I studied with Tracy. And a lot of so young, they have to be really strict. They can become very sensitive to warming foods like garlic and onions. I'm so young, though. So I'm someone who does cheat sometimes. And, you know, I eat foods sometimes that are not right for my constitution. And I don't really notice it quite as much. Mm. What is it? So so young is like Xiaoyang in, in Chinese? Yes, it's, it is. It is Xiaoyang, but it's not like the six confirmations. So this is more like greater yin, greater yang, lesser yin, lesser yang. Um, it's when, it's like the bigrams when the yin and yang split into the four bigrams. So what is a Soyang constitute? Well, okay, so first of all, yeah, I'm really curious because like you're saying, some people are more sensitive. Some people may be a little, when I say sensitive, I mean reactive to food. 
some people may be a little less reactive. So the so young sounds like a bit more reactive. You're going to notice something sooner if you're eating off the menu. Absolutely. So what does a so young constitution look like? Oh my God, I'm afraid it's me. So our constitution is basically like our internal climate or our internal landscape. Uh, and so we look to nature and see our body as a reflection of that. And so young is basically a very hot and dry environment. So young is lesser young because when young gets to its greatest point, that's when it starts to transform into yin. We're still at the lesser yang phase. It's not about to transform into yin anytime soon. This is pure yang. It's, it's hot and it's dry. So these people need cooling foods to kind of cool down and moisten that desert-like environment in their body and bring it to, to more of a balance. So no garlic. No garlic. Probably no cinnamon. Probably no onions. Hot spicy gongbao chicken. No, chicken's warming too. So it's, it can be a, a challenging diet to follow. But the nice thing is that so young respond really quickly to the diet. They often feel significantly better within two weeks of doing the diet. And that's because when you have a fire going on inside your body, all you have to do is just spray it with a fire extinguisher and it'll go out right away. Mm. Or choke off its oxygen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Coffee's probably in that category too, isn't it? Yeah. Whiskey? Yeah, probably in that category. Oh boy. Okay. So this brings me to another thought with our, our 80-20. We've just been talking about the, the 20%. That's helpful. You bring up the satsang constitutions and how you know if you eat the right stuff, it, it's really, really helpful. And, and that makes sense to me. That totally makes sense given what I think I know about Chinese medicine. So because of yin and yang, there's the stuff that we can do that's helpful. There's the 20% of what we can do that's helpful. We've had a little discussion about that and it's been really fun. So thank you for this. What's the 20% that should be avoided? Again, with the idea that that's going to get us 80% toward where we want to go. Okay. I'm so excited to talk about this because I've been doing the what not to do for a very long time. You have a don't do list. So I've been investigating nutrition for the past 15 years. And I've spent most of those years feeling very confused because I've studied this subject in university, but I've also read a lot of different things online and read a lot of different books and there are just so many different opinions. I'll, so one of the key things to avoid is to go on different diet groups and look at people's um, experiences on those groups and kind of join dietary communities. I strongly advise against that because people can sometimes develop like a little bit of an almost religious allegiance to a certain diet. It's almost like a cult sometimes. Like I'm vegan or I'm carnivore or whatever. And I still lurk on these diet groups so that I can understand people's experiences on these groups. And what I often see is that people will 
I've been on this carnivore diet for six weeks and I feel awful. And all I'm having is beef, coffee and water. And then people will swarm in and say, oh, you got to get rid of that coffee. It's the coffee that's responsible for all your symptoms. So you just got to go down to eating beef and water. And <laughs> so it's it can be really problematic to be a part of these groups. Yeah. So definitely avoid that because it can keep fueling you going into the wrong direction. You know, I, I've got some patients, they're in different kinds of groups. This is this is just kind of a sidebar, like maybe asthma. People have asthma, they go in the asthma group. And everyone in the asthma group, they, you know, everyone's got their idea and here's what you should do. And some people are very medically inclined and some are very alternative inclined or whatever. Usually the groups will sort themselves in a certain way. But that group think can be so strong that that when they have an experience that's different than the group, maybe they're getting better and they don't need their inhaler as much. And people are like, no, 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 you got to be on that inhaler all the time, all right? Or like, oh, no, no, that's not possible, all right? It's been medically proven by science. This thing cannot change, blah, blah, blah. You must take your medication. And, and I've seen folks that go on these illness support groups, very similar thing. They, they, there's kind of a mindset. It's a bit culty. And their own actual experience that may be different, it basically has no room there. Yes, it's very problematic. And actually, this ties into the principle of listening to your body, because what happens is when we go into these groups and we read all these posts by other people, then our mind takes over. And then that's when it's all intellectual. It's all about theories that according to the theory, this, this, and this, and who, like, never mind how my body feels. It's, it's all about what other people are saying. And that's something to avoid, for sure. Yeah. So avoid the group think. Okay. All right. That sounds important. I get it. What else? I would say also, I actually don't think there's much of a point in reading articles about nutrition. You are so radical, Brenda Lee. <laughs> I know. I'm, I Hopefully I don't uh, get in trouble for this. You're in trouble. You're in trouble already. Welcome to the club. Thank you. Yeah. Unless you have a PhD in nutrition, there's no point reading articles. And here's why. Because I think the vast majority of anything you read online is going to be majorly cherry-picked. Because I'm pretty sure I can find 10 articles tell you that the keto diet is amazing. And I can also find you 10 articles saying that the keto diet is horrible. So basically what I'm seeing is that people are just reading and listening to what caters to their narrative. And that doesn't really help in helping people actually figure out what's going to work for their body. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP-certified facilities, and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, 
heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. Right. We have a bias looking for a confirmation. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I think it's far more worthwhile to just focus on the principles and listen to your body and just ignore all the noise out there. Again, simple, not easy. I mean, we're walking around in our body. We can listen to it all the time. Should we? It's like the Mission Impossible thing. Your mission, should you decide to accept it or not? So listen to your body. People love science and articles and being proven right. Okay, what else can they do to replace that? You know, it's really hard to let go of something unless you can replace it with something else that feels like it's helpful. Uh huh. Yes. Okay. I'm glad you asked that. So I think something where we can actually, because people like to have information and knowledge is power. So I'm not saying that we should stop learning. But I think here's we, where we should focus our energy when it comes to learning is looking at, I like to look at kind of tried and true. So what's tried and true? There are a few things. Okay, so a few things here. The first thing is people is often like there's this like hierarchy of scientific evidence and like case studies are on the bottom and at the near the top of the hierarchy are randomized control trials. I think screw the whole pyramid. Like the most robust form of evidence that we have right now, I think, are communities of people who have made it past 100 years of age and they're still living long, healthy, productive lives. Oh, wait a minute. Didn't you just tell us not to go online to communities? Yeah, you're, I'm encouraging you to go to in-person communities. <laughs> Okay. Yes. Of people that are old and vital. Because those are living case studies of people who have made it this far. And I think that is the most reliable form of evidence. Because that is evidence that is, there's no confirmation bias. There's no industry sponsorship, whatever to it. These people have actually lived this long. And if you want to live this long, let's go and see what those people are doing. I love the piece that you mentioned about in-person. That's something that uh, I think is, is uh, really important for health, too, is having in-person connections, which are harder and harder these days, because isolation is one of the biggest killers, actually. I think there's um, scientists that have found that it's more deadly than cigarettes and alcohol. Um, is actually isolation. And isn't it especially interesting as we come out of the plague years and as there's this air quote social media that gives the appearance of connection that people connect to, that 
we are increasingly more isolated and and that's seen as a virtue in some way. It's like, well, I'm safer, right? During COVID, it was about, well, isolate to be safe. And a lot of folks, especially younger people, it's very difficult for them to be face-to-face in the same room with someone, eyeball to eyeball. And so there's that appearance of safety by having the mediation of the phone. But that eyeball to eyeball, especially over a dinner table. Yes. I mean, I'm sounding kind of old-fashioned here, partly because I'm old. But, man, you don't get away with nothing at the dinner table. Thanks for mentioning the dinner table, actually. I think that might be another one of the, the many principles, is to share your meals with other people over, um, you know, is to eat your meals with other people that kind of lift you up. And I think there is actually in the Brazil food guide, I think, in their national food guidelines, one of their guidelines is actually to eat with other people. Like, and that's a health guideline. Yeah, I'm putting that in the 20%. That makes sense. That intuitively feels right. And no phones. Oh, 100%. I'm, I'm with you on that one. I'm constantly having to tell my wife, put the damn phone down. No, give me the phone. <laughs> She's like a teenager. Okay, Brenda Lee, you're talking some old-fashioned principles here. Can I add one more old-fashioned principle? You can add as many as you want. Okay. Well, I just had one more thing to add um, because we were talking about, you know, learning and still finding ways to accumulate more knowledge in a way that's useful. And there's one more area where I think people can focus their energy on learning about nutrition. And that's in the area of traditional foods and traditional cultures. So that's another one of my tried and true things, because, I mean, traditional cultures have been around for thousands of years. So their diet. Mm -hmm. They're like old people. Yes. So these diets and these foods and these ways of eating from different traditional cultures are something that are really worthwhile to study because, I mean, they've been tested over time. So one of the things that we can do is look at where we live, our environment and our climate and examine, okay, who are the traditional people who lived on this land and how can we learn from them about how they have uh, foraged and harvested and grown food in in this climate for thousands of years? Because that gives us a clue about maybe that's how we we could be eating to be health, to be staying healthy. Leaning on what has worked. Yes. Leaning, leaning on what nature says, this is appropriate here, in this climate, in this space, in these seasons. Much trickier in our modern day, especially if, if you live in a place where migratory people used to live. So there's that as well. Yeah. So for them, they might not have been able to grown as much food because they didn't have an established kind of area. So I I suspect those cultures might have relied more on animal products. And that's something else we can learn from is, you know, how did traditional people honor the whole animal from head to tail and using all the organs? Because that is actually a really important way to nourish our bodies. In Chinese medicine, we know that some of the most potent herbs are animal-based. And 
you know, whatever organ of the animal is going to nourish our organs. So really normalizing eating all the odd bits of the animal, I think, are really important too. Yeah, I believe that's an acquired taste. But maybe all of our tastes are acquired tastes when I think about it. I remember living in Taiwan and my friends there loved, 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 loved chodofu. And like, you're at cho, you're at hall, right? Like chodofu you could smell from three blocks away. You know, it's like, that's the stuff. And uh, I mean, I tried it, but man, I, I just could not wrap my taste buds around it. And yet, when I think about the environment of Taiwan, which is really humid, I mean, people here in St. Louis, Missouri complain about it being hot and humid, but it's like, yeah, <laughs> try Taipei. So it's really hot and humid down there, and the chodofu is so, I mean, it's, it's like almost pathologically fragrant, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it's really good at dispersing dampness. That's so cool. Right? And they love it there. But again, it's an acquired taste. And from a Chinese medicine perspective, I can see how that would be helpful. Super, super fragrant. It's going to cut and break up that stagnating dampness. That's so fascinating because I only think about like kind of acrid herbs and spices cutting through dampness. And it's so interesting that the fragrance generated from fermentation could also have the same effect. Sure. Yeah. Isn't Chinese medicine fun? So much fun. <laughs> okay. So this seems like a pretty good place to start. 20% of things to attend to. 20% of things to sidestep. It's a good start. And, and you know, I, I would invite all y'all's out there listening, as, as you think about this, you'll probably find some stuff of your own. And, and if you do, like uh, send it in on the back of a $20 bill or just email it. And, uh, you know, I, I could share it on the podcast, you know, like in, in a little beginning segment or something uh, so that we can benefit from the wisdom of our community around this idea of, of the 20% around food to that's helpful in the 20% avoid. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Anything else to add? No, I don't think so, Michael. I think we've uh, covered it. We've had a very hearty discussion, I think. Yes, we have. Okay. Brenda Lee, it is always a delight to hang out with you. Thank you so much for uh, this investigation today. Likewise, Michael. I had a blast today. Food is such an emotionally loaded topic. Whether it's an overfocus on macronutrients or emotional fatigue from feeling like you need to be perfect in a world that's anything but. I'm not trying to help my patients with excuses when they feel like a failure for not measuring up to someone else's standard of willpower. And when obsession about food diminishes the joy that comes from food, mm, that's also a problem. So I like the idea of encouraging people to shoot for the most important 20% that will give them the 80% of what they're looking for in their nutrition. And likewise, knowing the 20% of what they should avoid. This seems 
more than doable, and it leans more on process and trajectory than perfection and obsession. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.